When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the College Hoops Daily Podcast. My name is Zach Kroll. I am your host, and we will be continuing our conference preview series here on the show. The college basketball season is just a couple weeks away, and you know that leading up to that, we are going to be talking a ton about the best sport right here on this show. And in case you guys missed it, over the course of the last few days, we have started this series earlier, uh, in, or last week, we broke down the Ace, uh, the SEC. We broke down the Big East, and we're going to be talking about the ACC here today, a ton of intriguing storylines going into this conference for this upcoming season, and I'm really excited to get into it all. And I won't be doing it alone, as joining me is our guy, Aaron Torres. AT, what's going on, man? Thank you so much for joining us here again today. ZK had a blood, dude, it's it's so fun, you know, kind of recalibrating that part of your brain. We're also locked in on football season, but it was so fun talking Big East with you, SEC with you, and I'll say this is that uh, for a conference that, you know, listen, I mean, they've had three Final Four teams the last two years, but trending in a weird way. But I just think there's a lot of really interesting conversations to be had about this league, even if I, I'm not sure how good some of these teams actually are. Absolutely. And I think you brought up a really good point to start. I feel like over the course of the last few days when we did the Big East and when we did the SEC, it was great to talk college basketball again. But I feel like even within the last 48 hours, it's really hit me like, man, the season is really close to getting here. I've been looking a lot at schedules uh, on certain days, especially for that first week of the season, just how loaded uh, the first few days are in terms of the number of quality games. And I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. But without further ado, let's get into the ACC. And I think you brought up a really good point to start. I think it's been just a bizarre last few years for this conference because They've lost three really good Hall of Fame coaches, right? Mike Krzyzewski, Roy Williams, and Jim Beheim. All three of those guys are now out of the picture. Jim Beheim, he actually just signed a, a contract with ESPN, so we're going to be seeing him. Be the wor- is anyone excited to listen to Jim Be- Like, there is a level of, you know, it's almost like Jason Garrett on, you know, college football or the NFL. It's like, you have to have a certain personality to do it. And and Jim Beheim, no one's questioning the basketball knowledge, but I mean, is he going to bring the fire to the studio that you need on a Tuesday night when Kansas is playing Texas? I don't know. So I saw that. Yes. And uh, I, I know there's actual basketball to talk about, but like, I mean, I know he's a hall of famer, but I, I don't, I, let's just say I'm, I'm not optimistic that he'll be winning any uh, Marconi awards or anything like that. 
The one thing I will say, and I've heard this a lot about Bayheim, and I really respect this. Like, the dude loves basketball. Like, for him to just retire and come right back uh, on our TV screens, I got to give him credit. I appreciate how much he really loves the sport. But And with- I will say real quick, he isn't afraid to say exactly what he thinks. Now, we'll see if he does it from a studio as opposed to when he was uh, when he was a coach. Like, it was funny, even prepping for today's show, like, you know, you're like, oh, you forgot when he was just like, oh, yeah, Pitt bought their whole team this year. Like, how are we supposed to? It was like stuff like that happened like twice a year when Beheim was like, so maybe that's a good point. He loves basketball. He's not afraid to say exactly what's on his mind. He's not, you know, maybe the inflection won't be there. It's not going to quite be Dickie V or, uh, you know, whoever Fran for Schilla, but, but, you know, the best, the best, the best analysts aren't afraid to say exactly what's on their mind. And at least when he was a coach, Beheim wasn't afraid to do that. Exactly, exactly. And with this league, I find it interesting too. I remember around 2013, 2014, when we hit the last conference realignment and the ACC added Syracuse, they added Louisville, they added Pitt, they added Notre Dame. And I remember when they made those moves, I remember thinking like, man, this is about to become just a basketball super conference. Now, I, I know they lost Maryland during that time as well, but I just thought you have Duke, you have North Carolina, two classic uh, programs. You also had Virginia. That's when they really started to come on. But over the course of the last few years, it's really felt like an underwhelming conference. Now, in each of the last two NCAA tournaments, they've only gotten five teams in. And in a conference with 15 teams, that's not a ton, especially considering how successful they were when Duke was winning a national championship in 2015, when North Carolina was winning a national championship in 2017. But it's an interesting dynamic because even though they haven't had a ton of NCAA tournament teams in the last few years, just based on the overall number, again, just five and five the last two years, they have had some really good tournament moments and teams make some tournament runs that not a lot of people saw coming. Miami, they made the final four this past year as a number five seed, and they easily could have lost in the first round to Drake. They were really on the ropes late in that game. That's what makes this sport and the NCAA tournament just so bizarre and so great at the same time. And then two years ago, we had North Carolina after really an underwhelming, what felt like an underachieving regular season, they come out of nowhere and make the final four. You also had Duke in the final four that year. You had Miami make the elite eight. They've now gone to back-to-back elite eights in the final four. I just think it's a very bizarre way that this conference has gone the last two years. And to be honest, sometimes I don't really know what to think of it. No, I, first of all, I agree. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I think part of, um, part of my belief, first of all, you know, I, I don't, it feels like, um, like, first of all, it feels like, I don't know how to say this delicately, but you know, if, if you look at say transfer portal recruiting, right. Um, and most transfer portal players, if you kind of, kind of do the homework, it's more of an NIL based thing and you know obviously older players they're they're, they might not be great professionals whatever and this is a league that really I guess North Carolina has been pretty good in the portal whatever but Syracuse up until this offseason Louisville whatever the point I'm trying to make is most of those best transfers are going to the SEC going to the Big 12 and it feels like from a commitment perspective those leagues are ahead the Big 10 financially is just fine and I really think more than it more than that though to me, it's, I think it's that second tier. It's, you know, we just talked about Syracuse. I think it, it, it's been very surprising to me 
to see that um, you have a situation where North Carolina and Duke are generally pretty good. I know North Carolina will obviously talk about here momentarily, but both those programs are pretty good. But Syracuse, you expect to be a top 25-ish type team throughout the course of the season. They haven't been anything close to that in essentially a decade, like you said. Louisville has not been that the last five, six, seven years. Uh, Wake Forest has had its moments throughout time. They haven't been that, although I think they'll be good this year. Georgia Tech has had their moments. So it's like, I think what, what struck out to me is, is two things is one that second tier is taking a step back. And I do think part of it again is the commitment by these schools. And I was thinking about this and I, I probably should have paired it with the NIL thing, but I mean, think about this, Zach. I was, I, I may have mentioned this somewhere else, but I, I have been thinking about it. I think you can argue the top four programs in this league are probably North Carolina, Duke, Syracuse, and Louisville. Am I missing? Those are like the top four-ish, right? And maybe make an argument for somebody else, whatever. Why I bring it up, all four of those schools in the last two off-seasons, or three off-seasons, I guess, have had a coaching change. And all four schools went with a first-year first year for someone that had never coached college basketball before. Okay. I guess in theory, um, you know, uh, uh, Hubert, whatever you get the point that I'm trying to make. I'm all over the place right now. So forgive me, but the point I'm trying to make top four programs, North Carolina, Duke, Louisville, and Syracuse, four of the premier programs. They they've, they've hired young guys without experience, never been a head coach before. That's kind of jarring when you think about the sec continuing to be committed and bring in, uh, you know, all the guys that they've brought in. Uh, the Big 12 has obviously had a level of commitment when it comes to coaches poaching a Jamie Dixon type three, four, five years ago, whatever it was now. So when I think about the SEC going out and getting er- the Eric Musselmans, the Bruce Pearls, the Rick Barneses, the whatevers, and then you have the top of the ACC all hiring first-time head coaches, I think that's the thing that stands out, and it's jarring as to why that upper, upper echelon has, for the most part, struggled Although, as you said, there's been a couple good tournament runs in there. That's a, a great point, I think, that I hadn't even really thought of. We know in today's game, today's era of college basketball, just how important the transfer portal is, along with co- the coaching carousel. Like, we talk about it all the time. As soon as the final buzzer goes off in the national championship game, the offseason literally starts. That's a big reason of just how much the sport has changed over the course of the last few years. And that mainly is the coaching carousel and the transfer portal starting even before that final buzzer ends, honestly. And that's a really good point. Like why aren't, especially the top teams in the ACC, but even the teams towards the middle, like why aren't they in line with the SEC and the big 10 when it comes to uh, some of the top transfers and the coaching carousel too. I remember just being very surprised, like, man, North Carolina, they're really going to replace Roy Williams with Hubert Davis. And I didn't know a ton about Hubert at the time, but I just expected, man, they're North Carolina. They're going to go after like Jay Wright or just some of the other top candidates in the sport. Uh, Louisville, the Kenny Payne hire made sense to me at the time. We're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. And Syracuse, Jim Beheim, I kind of felt like we all knew this had to be the end eventually, but they didn't even really look for another outside candidate. They just gave the job to uh Bayheim's top uh, assistant, Red Autry. So yeah, I think that's a really good point that I haven't really heard spoken about a lot. The fact that a lot of these top programs have had the opportunity to make major moves, whether it's in the transfer portal or the coaching carousel. And I don't want to say they've underwhelmed. They've just went a little bit more of the conservative route, playing it a little safer, which is very interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, two quick things. One, I guess this is the, and I say this as a UConn alum, it's the gift and the curse of having a legendary coach is that they have kind of say whether whether you want them to or not and who replaces them. And I do think part of why Roy Williams waited really until early April to make his decision was so that his guy could be placed. Um, you know, you you read about the Duke stuff. It felt like Duke's administration kind of wanted somebody who was established, a Tommy Amick or whatever. Um, but I, but I do think it's interesting and maybe, you know, maybe the parallel wasn't even the sec. Maybe that wasn't the right example, but look at the big East, the last two off seasons, right? Xavier goes and gets Sean Miller. When I'm certain that there were other school, like I'm, I guess it is a certainty South Carolina wanted Sean Miller. Sean Miller chose Xavier over South Carolina, but they don't get him without being competitive, without making commitments financially, whatever. Same with Rick Pitino and St. John's. Did he have a ton of options at 70 years old? I don't know, but he had options. He's a Hall of Famer. And obviously we can agree or disagree on how good Ed Cooley will be at Georgetown, but you know, Georgetown swung for the fences. So maybe that's even the better parallel of Big East, you know, Catholic schools. It's not as though they're these huge state schools with a ton of money and a ton of TV money. But St. John's got tired of losing. Xavier got tired of losing, and they really haven't lost much um, over the last uh, last couple of decades. Same with Georgetown, et cetera. So that's probably the better example of schools in another conference being all in as opposed to the to the ACC. Which, by the way, it's not as though all of them have failed. You know, Hubert Davis made a Final Four. John Shire, obviously, I thought had a pretty good first year, and and they should be pretty good this year, at least I think so. Um, but it's not as though they're all going to fail, but I do think it speaks to like, wow, these are big, big, big jobs and they've been replaced with relatively inexperienced guys. Absolutely. So let's start getting into some of these teams. And the first thing that really stands out to me in the ACC is they only have three teams ranked in the preseason AP top 25. You have Duke coming in at number two. You also will have Miami coming in at number 13 and you have North Carolina coming in at number 19. And let's start off with the two biggest brands in this conference. You have Duke, you have North Carolina, and you mentioned John Shire, and I think you brought up a good point. I think considering the circumstances, he did a pretty good job last year in his first year uh, replacing Coach K. It's very interesting. Duke started 4-3 and three in the ACC last year, but they ended 13-3 and three in their final 16 ACC games, and that included a run in the ACC tournament, which they won all three games. They took home the the conference tournament title. And considering the roster he had, we knew going into the season, it was going to be a very young roster with not a ton of experience. And I think for all the ups and downs they suffered, especially early on, I remember watching them against Purdue in the PK 85. That was really when Purdue, they peaked. They were playing their best basketball during non-conference play and they got blown out in that game. They also lost to Kansas uh, on opening night in the Champions Classic. Uh, they had a couple head-scratching ACC losses thrown in there as well to start. And just how well they ended the season, I think also combined with the fact the injuries. You know, they had uh, two guys that went pretty high in the NBA draft in Derek Lively and Derek Whitehead. Both those guys coming out of high school were top 10 five-star recruits. And I don't think they really made the impact that Duke was expecting going into the season because of the injuries. And still John Shire really had this program going in a good direction. And I think that momentum continued into the offseason where he was able to bring back a lot of these teams' uh, key pieces like a Filipowski, like a Jeremy Roach, Tyrese Proctor. We're going to get into it all. But AT, my first question for you when it comes to Duke is do you think them coming in at that number two spot in the AP poll, do you think that's deserved? 
And uh, what are your thoughts going uh, going into the season with this Duke team? Yeah, um, it's funny. I mean, if I had, I, I don't vote in the AP poll. If I had a vote, I would actually vote them number one. Um, so deserved, you know, it, it, can Duke be underranked at number two? And then, of course, naturally, most people think Duke is always overranked. So that there's that element of it as well. Um, yeah, listen, I'll, I'll say this, man. I know, like, everyone likes to poke at Duke and whatever, make fun of them. But, like, I sit there and look at year one. First of all, even going back to the um you know the the retirement tour for coach k like people made fun of it whatever it was put in place so that john shire had a full year to acclimate a full a full summer to go on the road recruiting as duke's head coach even when he was still an assistant and really essentially line up two recruiting classes the one that played last year at duke and then of course the one that's going to enroll this year that was largely committed you know two summers ago whatever so I actually think the, the the retirement tour worked about as well as it could. And then I, I will give credit to John Shire because, like you said, they really dealt with a lot of injuries, guys in and out of the lineup. And by the end of the year, they were a really, really good team. I mean, let's not forget. I mean, we talked about this on the SEC show, but, like, you know, Tennessee kind of punked them in the tournament. But let's not forget that in that specific uh, region – it kind of felt like things were lining up nicely. People were talking about like, oh man, Duke's going to make a nice little run here. You know, obviously if they had beaten Tennessee, they would have played whoever, you know, in in theory, maybe I think that was where Purdue was supposed to be, whatever. So the point I'm trying to make is like, it didn't start well, but I think a lot of it was injuries. He actually impressed me in year one. And then, you know, whether it is because of NIL, whether it is because of whatever to retain those guys, because this is a, a retention sport. It's an older sport. You look at all four teams that were in the final four last year, had a lot of pieces come back from the year before. So for them to get back, whatever it is for their top five scores, you know, Filipowski Roach Proctor and Mitchell, I think are for the top five, if I'm not mistaken, he's done just about everything right. But now we'll see what it's like with the pressure of the preseason expectations on both him and the team. Definitely. And I think it's interesting too. I don't, ever really remember a situation like this where Duke is bringing back a team like this filled with guys that were this highly regarded coming out of high school. You know, I remember like never happened. Exactly. Like I remember kind of early on in in the 2010s when coach K really started building his teams around the one and dones, you know, the Jabari Parker, the Jalil Okafors of the world. And kind of before that, Duke was a, a veteran team full, filled with continuity. But really, since Coach K kind of shifted his recruiting mentality to going after the one and dones, they haven't really been in a situation like this. And you have to give John Shire credit for that as well. I know they lost two guys, uh, like I mentioned, in Whitehead and Lively early to the NBA. But if you were to tell John Shire that going back to the start of last year, that he'd be bringing this much production back, plus a pretty solid high school recruiting class coming in this year as well. They also will return Ryan Young, a good veteran piece from last year's team. I agree with you. I probably would have had them number one in my uh, top 25 going into the season. And I definitely think they're a deserved favorite uh, going into this ACC. Yeah, one last thing on that. I'll be curious if in this, I don't know if this was the pitch from John Shire. But I think probably in this NIL world that we live in, I'm, I'm sure Duke's players are being very well taken care of, as they should be. That's 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 what the rules allow. But I think he, that that was probably what his pitch was: was hey, you can go, maybe be a second round pick, late first round, whatever. Um, but you can come back here. You're not coming back for nothing, and you can develop at your own pace. You can play another year of college basketball. I know everybody likes to make fun of college basketball, but it's really it's probably really fun to be a basketball player at Duke. And so I am curious, like on a national scale, if that is something 
that kind of becomes a thing. I mean, you're never going to retain the top, top, top NBA draft guys, but those guys all probably would have gone in the second round, except for Jeremy Roach. Like Proctor would have gone in the second round. Philip Powski maybe would have gone in the first round, but it's like, come back, mature at your own pace. You're going to get paid. You're going to get some money. I'll be curious because we're seeing that a little bit in college football right now with a Michael Penix, a Bo Nix, a whoever, guys that could have been third, fourth, fifth round picks last year coming back. I hope that's the case with college basketball. I think it's going to be. And maybe this Duke team is kind of the first iteration of that where guys that are maybe a second rounder that are going to have to grind their way through the G League. They say, you know what, let me come back for another year, uh, make some money and play play college basketball and hopefully improve my pro options, my pro future. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One last thought on this Duke team for me as well. I just wanted to say I was super impressed with Kyle Filipowski and just his overall game last year. I know he was a super highly touted freshman coming out of high school. But man, he averaged 15 points, about nine rebounds per game last year. was pretty efficient from the field as well. And I think... He has a very legitimate and reasonable case to say, you know what, like he should be, I guess, the favorite for preseason player of the year. But one story I wanted to hit on uh, from the offseason, he dealt with a little bit of injuries last year, and it turns out he got hip surgery over the offseason. And that's a big question. I I know that last year he was a great player, and going into this year, he should have very high aspirations. But does that worry you at all? The fact that really the best player on this team and maybe even one of the best players in the country had some pretty major hip surgery over the offseason. I think it could work one of two ways. I mean, it could worry you, or you could say that dude wasn't playing anything close to a hundred percent last year. You know I mean? And that was maybe part of the reason why he came back, but I'll give you an example that I know you'll appreciate because I know you love this guy, but you know, Jaime Jaquez at UCLA two years ago was basically, I think playing on like a really messed up ankle. And then he hurt his other ankle in the tournament. And that was part of the reason why I think he came back last year. And it really, um, it allowed him to get healthy and, and obviously improve his draft stock. He was a first round pick of the Miami Heat. But I just bring it up only because like maybe Filipowski, maybe you're a little worried about him going into the year or maybe sit there and say, that dude put up those numbers on a bad hip and now he's healthy. Like, let's see what he can do this year. So I have no reason to think it's going to linger into this year. Maybe it will. I haven't read anything. Maybe I missed a a story or a a narrative or something, but I just bring it up because I think it could actually be the opposite. Maybe possibly he's healthier. He's better. He's more fluid. He's more confident in his body, things like that. All right. So let's get into Duke's rival. The other team uh, really, I know there are four teams. So many Carolina, but let's get into it. 
uh, North Carolina and Hubert Davis, right? I, I think to me, and I remember when we did the Big East labeling Villanova into this category as well, but I think North Carolina is one of the more fascinating teams in the country going into this season because I look at their offseason, right? And I think Hubert Davis did a pretty good job. Yep. I think it's still up in the air, like what the deal really was with Caleb Love. And although I don't think it's as easy to say, oh, they got rid of Caleb Love and that's going to solve all of their problems. But at the same time, something was up with this team last year. We remember going into last year at this time, uh, they just had so many expectations. They were fresh off the final four run. They were a deserved, I think, number one team going into the season, considering they brought just about everyone back. They added Pete Nance, but it just never clicked. And it got so bad that North Carolina became the first team in the history of college basketball to enter the season as the number one ranked team and then go on to miss the NCAA tournament. But with that being said, again, I like their offseason. I think the additions of Cormac Ryan and Harrison Ingram, two guys from the transfer portal, were two pretty good ads. And I think they fit in pretty well with their top two uh, returning studs in R.J. Davis and Armando Baycott. But the thing is, it's not like North Carolina hasn't had a ton of talent over the course of the last few years. And Hubert Davis, I want to like him. I want to root for him. I think he did a really good job getting his team to buy in in 2022 during that Final Four run. But the harsh reality is, since Hubert Davis has been on this job, that one run, that one month of March a couple years ago, is really the only great month that he's had on the job. And I've, I have a very hard time trusting him going into this year. And I have a very hard time saying again that, oh, this team just got rid of Caleb Love and it's going to solve all their problems. All right. So let me dive into all that because I, I think you're right on pretty much everything. So first of all, my stance all summer has been really two things. One, he did about everything that you could ask of him. You you referenced all of it, but you get, um, you know, first of all, I think it's important to note, like you retain a couple really good players in Baycott and RJ Davis, right? Um, and that's something that I do think is a little bit of a positive. And I know they weren't great NBA draft prospects, but if the program was falling apart and they hated playing for him in the portal era, they could bounce or they could go pro or whatever. You obviously, you referenced all the transfers, Elliot Cadeau, five-star freshman is coming in as a reclass kid. So you retain players, you got transfers, you got a five-star. That's all great. I also think everything that you said about Caleb Love is true as well. Um, I have said on my show many times, I don't know if it's true or not. We're going to find out. But this offseason was basically framed as, and that nobody said it publicly, but you, you can kind of tell by the way things went. The, the offseason was framed as everything last year was Caleb Love's fault. Blame him. Because, again, you retain basically the guys that you wanted to, and, you know, it, it seems that way. And, and it, it got out that he he wasn't really welcome back. You know, he it, it was – I think they said it was best for all parties to move on, but it, it became clear he wasn't welcome back. So I will say uh, I do th- – it's not even like a, a take. Like, it's just a fact. Is like it, it, it's kind of show me time for Hubert Davis, right? First year, your new year on the job, this, that, the other thing, adjustments – Last year's a debacle. Well, this year, it's your program. I mean, you know, outside of Baycott and Davis, who you've been with for three years now, they're all your guys. You know, Carolina was a school that players didn't really transfer into and certainly out of. A lot of guys left. You brought in a lot of your own guys through the portal. Um, And so there's no doubt about it. It's go time. Now, what I will also say, 
I'm I'm drinking the Hubert Davis Kool Aid. I I'm I have convinced myself it was Caleb Love's fault, and I I, I I'm kind of being facetious, and I I don't mean to be mean to a 21 year old kid, but like I have convinced myself that the talent is there, that the chemistry will be better, and that this team will be better. So I'm buying. I think they were what 21 in the first AP poll. I have them a little bit higher. Uh, I do think probably third behind Duke and Miami is the right spot, which is where most people seem to have them. But this is a team I think if it clicks. They could be a top 10 type team all year. I think they can be a second weekend team playing to go to the final four. The talent is there. Uh, and I'm believing that the chemistry is going to be better minus Caleb Love. Yeah, I think you made some good points and I could definitely see that being the case. But I don't know, man, like I don't know if I could fully just buy into the offseason narrative that you said, like, oh, Caleb Love's gone now. Everything is going to work like I, based on what I've seen over the course of the last two years, I just don't know if it's that simple. And I agree. The talent level on this roster is really good. It, it was very important for them to bring back Davis, to bring back Baycott. Both those guys have a ton of experience playing college basketball. The kid Cadeau, I think he kind of throws a, I don't even want to say a wrench, but he kind of just throws an interesting twist into things because we've both been watching this sport for a really long time. And we know how it usually goes with reclass freshmen, especially when you're asking them to play such a big role. And I'm kind of curious to see how he fits into all this when you have a team around him really full of veteran guys that have been playing the sport for a long time. I understand it's always good to have that blend, but it's interesting because from what I've been reading about him and from what I've heard, this is a, a player that really likes to have the ball in his hands most of the time. And I'm curious to see how, a reclassified freshman with a coach that's still kind of unproven, although his team is very talented. I'm curious to see where he fits into the mix of things here as well. Yeah. I've seen Baycott say in interviews and stuff that Cadeau is the best passer he's played with in his time at Carolina, which is obviously a great sign, but listen, you know, it's a cliche comment, but it is true. Sometimes, you know, stuff gets said and, and it's not true, but this one is young, you know, reclass guys generally do struggle and especially at the point guard position. I mean, you can go on and on through all the years. We kind of know the names. The one that's standing out to me most is probably Devin Askew, which is unfair to him. You know, former Kentucky guard who ended up at Texas. Now he's a Cal. But, like, it, it's it's hard. And I think the one thing you learn is that – and, by the way, like, you go back to to the reclass stuff. I mean, I, I know there were guys that, that did it previously, but it feels like it really kind of started with Marvin Bagley. And like, like the real like wave of like, okay, every summer we're going to have two, three guys make this decision. Um, and I think Marvin Bagley was, was phenomenal. Like once he, I don't want to say like once in a generation high school player, but he was a really, really good high school player. So the transition for him was easier than it would have been for some others. And I think people think just because you're a five-star that it's going to be whatever. But I'll also say like, I, I do think, you know, the college basketball kind of community kind of understands, Hey, this is probably a little harder than we give it credit for. And the good thing is he isn't alone. Like RJ Davis can obviously handle the ball if need be. Um, I think they prefer that Cadeau is able to run the point. RJ Davis play more off the ball with the Harrison Ingrams, the Cormac Ryans, whatever. Um, but the good thing is he won't be alone. I don't think this was a like, you know, he reclassified because they desperately needed him. And because they desperately need him, they're going to have to play him 36 minutes a game. So I'm a little bit more optimistic that he is productive. But I do think just because he's a five-star, was a top 10 prospect in the 2024 class, like to expect him to just step in and be like an all ACC caliber guy or be the equivalent of Jeremy Roach, who's been playing college basketball for four years, that's probably not quite fair either. 
Yeah, it's funny you brought up Roach because if I was a Carolina fan, I would just say, you know what, just be what Tyrese Proctor was for Duke last year. That that sure. was another example that came to mind for me. And Proctor was good. Like, he was solid. And I think a lot of people are expecting him to have a, an even bigger season this year. But at the end of the day, it was clear. Like, he wasn't just really someone Duke could rely on as a true, not even a true freshman, a reclassified freshman going into the season. But that uh, comment by Baycott, if that's true, that's definitely a, a scary sight for this North Carolina team. Now, I think this is a pretty good segue because we know going into this season that Hubert Davis has a ton of pressure, right? It feels like a make or break year. I like what you said. It's kind of a show me type year for him. And there's another coach in this league that fits that same category. And of course, I'm talking about Kenny Payne at Louisville. And it's so interesting because you referenced it to start off the show, like the four big time programs, in the ACC, the four programs everyone looks at in terms of who they are and name, you have Duke, you have North Carolina, you have Syracuse, and you have Louisville. And I got to say, the Kenny Payne hire to me made a ton of sense at the time. I know that he didn't have much experience coaching college basketball as a head coach. Now, we know he was on John Calipari's staff at, at Kentucky for a while. But even though I didn't necessarily fully agree with it, I did understand where Louisville was coming from when they decided to move on from Chris Mack. Even though he had some good moments, it was kind of just clear that he wasn't recruiting to that Louisville standard. Although he was having success, he made the NCAA tournament in his first year when not a lot of people really saw that coming. Then a couple of years later, he has Louisville all the way up to the number one team in the country at one point in the, I believe it was, yeah, the 2020 COVID season. But the overall talent level just wasn't there for Louisville compared to what their expectations were. So they they said, you know what, we're going to bring in a guy who is a great recruiter in Kenny Payne, a guy that should give us all these connections, worldwide West, all, all that good stuff. And it just hasn't worked. And when I say it just hasn't worked, it's only been one year, but I don't think things like it couldn't have gone worse for Louisville last year. And I got to say one last thought. It's interesting for me going into the season Louisville last year started 0-3, losing to mid-major schools they just have no business losing to. And when they're dropping those games, it kind of just seemed to me like their season's over. Like, like what's even the point of watching them? And I remember, like, watching them in the Maui Invitational a little bit as well. They were just such a tough watch. And I do know the overall level of talent is better, but are the results going to be any better? And I do think a very good and intriguing question is who has the hotter seat going into the season, either Hubert Davis or Kenny Payne? It's a great question. Um, you know, first of all, with the Louisville stuff, and I'll say this is I think it's easy with hindsight to say, what were they doing? But the consensus from pretty much everybody was like, this is probably the right guy. And listen, and part of it was, you know, you, you throw out names like a Bruce Pearl. Bruce Pearl got a major extension because of the Louisville opening. Nate Oates, his contract buyout was never going to allow him to be a legitimate candidate, even if he wanted the job, which I don't think he would have even been interested. I just bring it up because that hire did make sense. But as far as the hot seats are concerned, you know, I'll, I'll start, I'll give my answer, then I'll throw it back to you, and then we can talk about the other one. Like, I do think it's Kenny Payne because, first of all, I, I will say, like, we just talked about Hubert Davis. I do think that he has done a lot of right in the last six, seven months since the season ended as far as roster construction, rebuild, this, that. Kenny Payne has, but um, first of all, the first roster was such an abomination that like he doesn't get a pass for how bad that was. Um, and then two, 
you know, you lose your your highest rated recruit, Trenton Flowers, in the middle of the summer, which I actually feel bad for Kenny Payne about. The parents just were like, yeah, we're going to Australia to play pro basketball. Not what I would advise my son to do, but neither here nor there. Um, and it just, it, it, I don't know. It doesn't feel right to me is like, you know, they, they, they were a little bit better. I like some of the pieces. I like Trey white, the transfer from USC. Um, but at the same time, first of all, the, like what you have to do just to like, to get back to respectability, I think it's going to be hard. Right. I mean, you talk about whose seat is hotter. Um, he started, he was four and 28 and I don't even know what he has to do for the fan base to feel good about it, right? Like forget NCAA tournament. I mean, what is, uh, you know, is a 10 game improvement and going 14 and 17, like, does that get anybody excited? Probably not, you know? So like, so I don't even know what is realistic, but it also feels like something's not quite right. Trenton Flowers leaves. I don't know if you saw this, Zach, but uh, in the off season, Nolan Smith, who was at, for a time a very hot assistant coaching name, people thought he was going to get head coaching opportunities, leaves Duke to come to uh, to come to Louisville. Excuse me, that was deemed to be a major victory for Kenny Payne. Uh, Nolan Smith, it leaked out, actually interviewed for a G League head coaching job this summer. So if your lead recruiter isn't totally bought in on the vision, it's hard to know uh, if the players are and if there's really a long term plan in place. So. We talk about Hubert Davis in a minute and kind of his future, but I think the answer is Kenny Payne. I know it's only been one year, but when you go four and 28, like I said, he could have a seven win improvement this year and still only be 11 and 21. And I don't think 11 and 21 saves your job. And so it's just a fascinating situation that he and that program find themselves in. I'm just sitting back here. Like, I just don't know how things got this bad this quick. Like it doesn't. Can I jump in? Yeah, that first portal cycle was an abomination. Um, you, like in the the portal era, and you take over, and you have you. And by the way, I know that he'll say and others will say, "Oh, the 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 long term NCA investigation did them in." Arizona never missed a beat during that entire NCA investigation. They changed coaches too. So if you want to say, "Oh, well, Kansas, you know, Kansas won a national championship while they were under investigation," they had the same head coach. Arizona, Sean Miller rebuilt it twice. He rebuilt it with Nico Mannion and Josh Green in 2020, and then he rebuilt it with the international kids. Then he handed it over to Tommy Lloyd, and Tommy Lloyd maybe potentially even took it to another level in that last year and certainly has had success since. So, one, don't tell me it's the NCAA stuff. When I knew that they were probably in trouble was that first portal cycle. Like, like it's the portal era. Everybody's recruiting the portal, and your your big get in the offseason, your first, your first season – is Brandon Huntley Hatfield like like respectfully shout out BHH you know those those Vols fans let's say know exactly who he is but it's like this was a guy that wasn't even on the court for Tennessee and you know and and again it's not like you're Kentucky and four of your starting spots are already settled or Duke and you really don't have any playing time there was playing time to be had you're supposed to be a good recruiter you hired a staff full of good recruiters and you couldn't get anybody that's when I knew it was bad. And so, you know, we could talk about X's and O's. I'm not the guy that criticizes, you know, out of bounds plays and stuff like that. But like, I just think it's a talent accumulation business. A large part of why you were brought in is because supposedly you are an elite recruiter. And that first portal cycle was just a total disaster. Right. And say what you want about Chris Mack. I, I know his tenure there was a little bit underwhelming, but at least he fielded competitive teams. That oh, yeah. Have success, you know, and you thought that when they moved on from him, 
and brought in Kenny Payne and Nolan Smith, it's like, oh, okay, these guys recruiting-wise are just going to take things to a whole new level, and it's just been the opposite. And if you're a Louisville fan, it's very hard to have a ton of hope going into this season because, like you said, they could have a 10-win improvement, which is not easy to do, and they should be better just based on the overall talent level, but this is Louisville. You know, this is one of the best programs in the sport, and that's not good enough. So I don't really know what what you could say, like, okay, yeah. if Payne wants to keep his job, they have, they have to reach this. I, I don't have – usually I, I'll have, like, a pretty good yeah. idea of what that benchmark is, but I, there there's nothing clear. Well, and I was going to say, too, and I think this is interesting, and this is a question maybe from my buddy Nick Coffey, who hosts radio down in Louisville. I think there's a difference between, like, what does he have to do to retain the job Versus what does he have to do to really build like confidence in the fan base that he could long-term be the right guy, right? Because maybe he does win 10 more games and they go 14 and 17 and he sells, Hey, we won 10 more games. It's a, it's a 10 win improvement from last year. But if you're 14 and 17 going into year three, is the fan base really believing in you or did you do just enough to justify keeping your job? So that's another kind of interesting conversation. And, um, and that's one that bluntly, like you said, I don't think there's an easy answer to like, I, I, I guess if you're, I guess if there's a silver lining, it's like, if you're going to be bad, really bottom out like they did so that you can then sell, Hey, we went 14 and 17, baby. It's all, it's nothing but rainbows and sun, sunshine. Everything's on the way up. But, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I really, and again, I might have to give our, my, my buddy, Nick coffee, a call who hosts radio after this, because I am curious, like what would have to happen for the Louisville fan base to have confidence that this is the right guy. I don't know. You know, like I said, he had that, that like sort of moment in the spring where he got a few guys and there was a little bit of excitement, but then you lose flowers, Nolan Smith interviews for another job. And it just feels like there's no juice to this program right now. Looking at Louisville's schedule in the non-conference portion to start the year. It's interesting. I don't, I'm guessing Kenny Payne did this on purpose. He set it up this way, but it's not too difficult of a non-conference schedule. They will be at Madison Square Garden uh, in mid-November for a four-team event. It's This is interesting. It's going to be Louisville, mm-hmm. Texas, UConn, and Indiana. So I, it's going to be interesting watching Louisville against any of those three. I think teams. they start with Texas. I could be mistaken because I think UConn opens that event with Indiana. So I think they start with Texas, which I don't know if that's winnable or not. I don't like Texas this year. We'll do our Big 12 preview later, but just because I don't like Texas doesn't mean that Louisville's beating them. So yeah, like you just compare those three teams, and it, it's not really close. And then you have some interesting, somewhat challenging uh, games against mid-major teams: New Mexico State and Bellarmine, who beat them last year. And then they'll go to DePaul, and then the big one against Kentucky on December twenty-first to end things. I think uh, we mentioned that in the SEC preview. Like doesn't count. Doesn't count, count as a big game for Kentucky. Yeah, I think I, I'll say this. That's when you know it's bad. I think Kentucky fans actually feel a little bad for Louisville fans. And maybe I'm dead wrong on that. I don't want to speak for all of Big Blue Nation. But I think there's at least a percentage like, one, KP helped us to a lot of wins. You know, we want him to be good. Um, And then, two, um, we just want our rival to matter. Like, we want that game in late December to mean something. So I could be wrong. They could be reveling in just how awful this team is. I don't know. Um but it's an interesting conversation. By the way, that's also my favorite Louisville theory, which I saw, you know, they have that like message board geniuses Twitter account. It was like Kenny Payne's a deep plant for John Calipari to sabotage the program. Like, I think that one came out about, you know, mid to late December last year when Louisville was like one in nine to start the season or whatever. 
It's so funny too because it, it seems like such a long time ago when Cal Perry and Chris Mack were beefing. That I remember that game. I think Mack's first year going in. Like, yeah, uh, that that seems like a really long time ago. And I, I agree with that sentiment. Like, I, I just want Louisville to matter. Like, the sport is better when they matter. I, I'm still somewhat stunned again how quickly things have just kind of spiraled out of control, and it just really doesn't seem like this program is that relevant right now. And it's wild because I thought it was going to be the opposite effect when they brought in Kenny Payne. We didn't necessarily know how much he was going to win, but we thought, okay, he would at least be bringing in some big names to draw some attention on the program at the very least. And that just hasn't happened. It just hasn't happened. And um, yeah, there. I, I mean, I don't, you know, listen, the world now is like a collective NIL world. I get it. But I think Louisville can be competitive in that space. I just, like, like you said, I, I don't know how it got bad, so bad, so fast. And I know I, I cut you off and I said, oh, it's because they whiffed in the portal year one, but they just shouldn't be that bad. And so I don't know, you know, I, I think their AD is praying that it gets turned around. I don't even know who would be a, a logistical, can, a, a logical candidate for that job if it opened up again. Um, I, you know, it feels like they're paying a lot of buyouts to a lot of, I mean, I guess maybe that's mostly done with Chris Mack and, uh, you know, they owed Petrino some money for some years there, but, um, yeah, I don't even, like I said, I, I, I think it's the most interesting question is like, I don't even know what he needs to do to like keep his job. It's, it's kind of an interesting question when you actually think about it. Yeah. And, uh, I'm curious to see how they do again, uh, during non-conference as well. I think Kenny Payne definitely, uh, made it out. He, that's what he was expecting. Like just when he was putting the schedule together, I'm, he just wasn't trying to collect that many losses to start off the season, but we hit on this program earlier in the ACC preview. And it's interesting because I think Syracuse is in, in uh, a fascinating spot because, and you kind of opened my eyes to this, right? It really felt over the course of the last few years that they were just underachieving with Jim Beheim, and it was time for him to go uh, somehow. The, the, the guy was just at Syracuse forever. And now they bring in Red Autry. He, he moves up a spot uh, to the head coach position. And to start off, it's always interesting, too. We, we spoke about it with uh, Jay Wright and, and Kyle Neptune, that transition at Villanova. When you have a legendary coach and he brings in one of his top assistants to take his spot, is there a philosophy shift at all, especially when it comes to recruiting? And Syracuse, it really felt like Adrian Autry, he was more active in the transfer portal. They bring in a former five-star recruit in J.J. Starling from Notre Dame. He's going to go along with Judah Mintz, who played at Syracuse last year. He was one of the more important decisions over the offseason during the NBA draft cycle. It really felt like that was kind of 50-50, whether he was going to come back or not. He had some really good moments last year, especially in ACC play. And Jim Beheim last year, he did bring in a pretty solid freshman class that had some moments. And I'll give Autry credit for getting all of those guys to come back. So even though they have a new head coach, there is some continuity here, given the fact that they bring, they keep Autry as the head coach and they keep a lot of the same players from last year alongside a really good transfer they bring in. So what do you think is the overall ceiling for Syracuse, not only this year, but in the future under Autry? And I think you do, you've done a really good job explaining this to me over the course of the last few years. Like when Syracuse is popping, when, when their program is at their best, just how good could it be? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, yeah, this is a take that I've had for several years now. And, you know, growing up in the Northeast, you know, I, I've been to games at the Carrier Dome when Syracuse was a top 10, top 15 team. And I've said this a million times, so if people have heard me say it, I forgive me, but it is as unique of a home court as there is in college basketball. And I will argue that when there are 30,000 people for a Syracuse game and Syracuse is good, it is as tough of a place to play as anywhere in college basketball. And so, you know, as a, you you know, for people who probably know, but might not, like I, I did go to UConn. So I think everybody thinks, oh, UConn, you want to see Syracuse fail. It's like, no, I want to see them reach their potential because that's an awesome place to watch games. And, you know, when, when Bayheim was there those last couple of years, I kept saying like, guys, like, you know, this isn't a Supreme court, just like, it's not a lifetime contract that, that, you know, just cause he's been there forever. doesn't mean he gets to keep the job as long as he wants it. And so I'm excited for the new era. You know, listen, I think, you know, another one, I think it's a theme of, of the show. I think Red Autry's done about everything you could, you could have asked of him, um, you know, hit the portal, retain Judah Mintz, as you said, um, he's been very open that, you know, the zone is not here to stay, which I think is what Syracuse fans want to hear. But I'm just excited for the new era because it's another one of those places. I get that it's a changing landscape, by the way, like Jim Beheim turning them into a power is kind of a big deal. You know, the Syracuse area for people who don't, it is not an easy place to get to. It's not a fun place to live like seven months out of the year. And so for him to get elite teams and final four teams and a national championship team, there is a credit to him during the eighties, nineties, and you know, two thousands, but those last seven, eight years, I don't think you can argue there was a program that, that less lived up to its potential than Syracuse. And again, I I know I've said this a few times, I understand it's a, a collective NIL world now. And, you know, it's not just about what have you done in the past, but kind of, what are you doing for me right now? But, but I hope, I, I think they're the program along with Louisville that for the ACC to be at its best, both those programs have to kind of get back I will say we just talked a lot about Louisville. I kind of think Syracuse is probably better built this year to have some immediate success, but we will see uh, as the Red Autry era begins here over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think too, I'm not entirely sure like what to do with them in, in terms of like the where I see the ACC map mapping out and with all these teams, because there's definitely talent here. I think you could even make the argument that the overall talent level of this team, it's improved compared to, to the last few years under Bayheim, the hopeful elimination of the two, three zone, as you said, is something I think a lot of Syracuse fans wanted. And also just being active in the transfer portal. I mean, JJ Starling uh, at this time last year, he was one of the most anticipated freshmen. A lot of people were looking forward to watching in the country. He has uh, some experience playing in the ACC as well. And I just thought things kind of got stale because even it got really bad over the course of the last few years when Syracuse was missing the NCAA tournament. That's something that should just not happen that often. But even when they were making final fours in these tournament runs, 
people got to remember, like, they were just barely sneaking into the NCAA tournament. They were just living on the bubble. So I feel like Syracuse fans, they're pretty desperate to just, for not only a change, but just to see a winner because it really felt like for a good six, seven-year stretch there, maybe even longer, that under Bayheim in the late 2000s, the early 2010s, this program was popping. It was doing great. And uh, like you said, the home court advantage, I I think the ACC is just in a much better spot with this program being good, being relevant. And I think their fans should be hopeful because there there is plenty of talent here. I like the fact that uh, Autry was able to keep all those guys from last year. Yeah. I think that's the difference between like them and a Louisville is they weren't that far off a year ago. Uh, and you bring back some good players and now it's just about, can you be in position to succeed? But this is a program I, I really think, they should be consistently in the top 20 to 25. And I understand, again, resources, all that stuff, you know, is it on par with some of the big, you know, state schools in the SEC, Big Ten, whatever, maybe not. But it it shouldn't be that far off. You know, the alumni base is obviously very prominent and successful, and it does have the history and it does have something that makes it unique. Uh, So I'm just curious to see. This is one I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on if it will work, if it won't. I think the good news is it probably in theory can't get much worse. Although I'm sure Louisville fans thought that after they got rid of Chris Mack, but like in theory, they they should be improved this year. And, and I think again, if we want to use the Louisville parallel, it's not as though you're starting at the bottom of the barrel, having to basically replace your entire roster. Um, you know, you, you have some nice pieces coming in. You did do good work in the transfer portal. Now it's time to see what they do once once the, the season starts. I should mention, by the way, I think Chance Westry, one of their the, the transfers that I liked, he is going to be out for a little bit of, of a while with an injury. So that's kind of worth noting. But overall, like, like what they did. I just hope I just hope it comes back. I really do. I just it's it's the cliche, and I know you just said it with Louisville, but I think it is the same for Syracuse. Like it's really cool for college basketball when that program's good. One last thought on this ACC before we get out of here. I wanted to talk a little bit about Virginia because I think it's a little bit I don't want to say underrated, but under discussed. Like just how good this program was under Tony Bennett. I would say from 2014 right until they won that national title in 2019, and. Over the course of the last few years, we've spoken about it a lot on this show. College basketball has just changed. We know there's a lot more emphasis on the transfer portal. We know there is a a lot more emphasis on NIL. You have to be active in in both areas if you want to build a winner. And I think it's interesting, too, because Tony Bennett, and he's had a lot of success doing this, uh, especially this way, but he's one of those guys where he would – he really believed in development. He would take freshmen into his program and they might not have necessarily been the uh, highest ranked, highly touted recruits. So a lot of times they wouldn't even play that often as freshmen, but as their careers would go on, they would keep on learning the system. They would keep getting better. And by the time they got to their junior and senior year, they would thrive. They would know exactly what he wanted, exactly what he expected in that uh, pack line defense. And I'm just very curious to see, is that same formula going to be able to work in this era of college basketball and if not is he going to be someone that wants to change it now since that national title in 2019 they have made two of the three NCAA tournaments that have gone on during that stretch but they also haven't won a tournament game both times they were uh, number four number five seed and they lost in the first round they were upset both years and it's funny because I think it would be easy for me to say like uh it's not going to work I don't love the trajectory of this program but at the same time, I'm looking at some of their pieces on this year's team, and, and I'm pretty intrigued. Reese Beekman is a guy that's been playing college basketball for a really long time. He's someone that knows exactly 
what Tony Bennett wants. He's kind of your prototypical Virginia player. And then also last year, they actually had some younger players show some nice flashes that had me really encouraged and intrigued going into this year. The one name that comes to mind there is Isaac McNeely. I think he's going to be one of the better uh, players, just a sharpshooter, one of the best shooters in the ACC. And Tony Bennett is a really good coach. Like He has his flaws, and we could get on him for that. But most of the time, when he's at Virginia, he's winning, and he's going to the NCAA tournament. So what do you think about this program? Do you think that is a formula that could still work in today's game? And if not, is he someone you think that would be willing to change? First of all, this is maybe my favorite stat in all of college basketball. Last six years... Virginia has six NCAA tournament wins. They all came in the 2019 national championship run. So that includes three, uh, three first round losses, uh, an opening or uh, three first round losses in NIT, as well as a tournament that never was played in 2020, but it's just an unbelievable stat. So as far as everything you said, you and I are in alignment on a lot of stuff here um, with the ACC. I am dubious that you can really build a program like he did it seven, eight years ago in today's sport. I think that's part of the reason why Jay Wright is no longer in the sport, except as an analyst. I think that's part of the reason why Roy Williams is no longer in the sport, except as an analyst. Um, I'm not sure if you can build a program that way. And I'm not sure if he can win conversely with plug and play guys every single year. There's some guys that can do that, that have success. We've talked about him, Calipari, Chris Beard, Eric Musselman, um, there's a lot, you know, Nate Oates, I think Bruce, you know, you go on and on down the list. There's a lot of guys that have proven the ability to be able to do it. Um, but I'm not sure that he's won. I bring all that up to say, when you do look at this team on paper, there are pieces to like Reese Beekman, you know, if he's six foot five, instead of six foot two, he's probably in the NBA right now. Really, really good player. Just doesn't have kind of those measurables for, uh, an NBA lead guard or whatever you want to call them. I like the transfers, you know, Jacob grows from Oklahoma, um, not like a super sexy name, but I think he fits what they do and what they do. Well, uh, the road kid from the small school, St. Thomas was very good. And a lot of people think he's going to fit in there very well. So, um, I am curious what they look like. I think they can be an NCAA tournament type team, but I am also curious can you keep doing it year after year? And can you keep building when you lose players at the rate in which college, most college programs do. And I would just say like, you know, I don't have this on any sort of authority or anything like that, but like I could just see Tony Bennett in, you know, two more years saying I've had enough. I had my run. I got my ring. It was a fun run. This isn't what I signed up for. And we see more and more guys doing that. You know, Jay, Jay Wright was obviously a lot older, but Jay Wright did it. Cal did it. Um, and I, I just don't know, like, I don't think Tony Bennett wants to build a program that way. And I think if we get two, three more years down the road and you're kind of a fringe tournament team, you can't really win. You can't retain your players. You're not going to spend a you know, millions on NIL. Like, I just don't know if that's something he wants to do, but as far as this year's concerned, I think they should be pretty. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good. 
Yeah. And I think overall, when you look at what they've done over the course of the last few years, like it hasn't been terrible. And, and when you watch them, you no. see reasons for you to be excited. But th- especially that uh, tournament loss last year in the opening round uh, that, to Furman, that, that one of the better first round NCAA tournament games I can remember, they really had the lead for the majority of that game. Kihei Clark, the one piece that uh, has been with them the last few years, he's not going to be back. So they even lost some of their more experienced players. Uh, Jaden Gardner and Armand Franklin are the other two names that come to mind. They won't be back. But uh, I did hear about the the kid from St. Thomas. I've heard some good things uh, about him as well. Ryan Dunn, he's actually from my neck of the woods in Long Island. He played a little bit as a freshman last year. He has some NBA buzz, pretty athletic, uh, power forward type. I, I think he'll have a bigger role on this year's team. A couple more thoughts, though, before we get out of here for real on this ACC. First, I wanted to give some credit to Miami because sure. someone that, uh, yeah, I, I've been a little bit reluctant to fully buy into them over the course of the last few years. But at this point, after they make an Elite Eight and a Final Four in back-to-back years, they win the ACC regular season title last year. I think it's finally time to give Jim Laranega and, uh, and his staff some credit because I haven't always been able to buy in and be a full believer. And it's so funny. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, like they easily could have lost in that opening first round tournament game to Drake, Norshad Omir, who I'm a big fan of. I think he's one of the best players in this league. He had some injuries leading into that game. It was unknown if he was going to play. They were down, I believe, like 12 with eight minutes to go. They, they find a way to win. And it was just a wrap from there. They go all the way to the final four, even making the elite eight two years ago. And even though they lose some guys uh, that were very important, like an Isaiah Wong and a Jordan Miller, I do really like the core they bring back with uh, Nigel Pack, one of the my favorite players to watch in the country. I mentioned Omir. They also have some guys uh, like uh, Wuga Poplar and like Bensley Joseph, who have been role bench players uh, in those tournament runs. But now they're going to be ready for a bigger role. They bring in Matthew Cleveland as well from Florida State, uh, a top-notch transfer, former five-star recruit. So they have a really talented team. And uh, I'm fully buying into Miami this year. I think they fully deserve to be uh, the number two team in this league going into the year behind Duke. Yeah. And, you know, for if if we have any Miami fans that are like, why have you not? It's you're really good. We both really like you. You return a lot. There wasn't a lot of, of offseason movement outside of Isaiah Wong going pro and Matt Cleveland coming in. It's just a really well-run program. And I think the thing that I, I give them credit for is, you know, being around them at the Final Four last year, it was just a group you can tell there's a lot of mutual respect. By the way, this is a perfect example of what we were talking about the lead show. Miami is almost the opposite of a Carolina, a Duke, a, a Louisville, a Syracuse, is they went out, whatever it was, seven, eight years ago, and got a pretty established coach. Jim Laranega had been to a Final Four, had, you know, had 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 built had real success at George Mason. Um, and it's continued over. And so um, you know, because it's Miami, because it's a football school, they it doesn't get the credit it deserves. But being around them at the Final Four, it was a group that you could tell really liked each other. There was mutual respect between the coaching staff and the players, which I think, you know, sometimes because this is such a transactional sport, players come, players go, you could tell everybody liked each other. So, no, I'm with you. I think they're just a really good team. We're not talking about them because there's nothing super sexy from the offseason that happened. But as weird as it sounds, like, you know, with the core that they have, and I know Wong was so important to what they did, I mean, if they're in another second weekend playing to potentially go to another Final Four, it would not surprise me at all because I, I do like Norchad O'Meara. Uh, all the guys you mentioned, I think Bensley Joseph was a guy that every time I watched them was really, really, really good. Uh, and I think they have a chance to be – I don't think they have a chance. I think they will be very good again. 
So we feel pretty confident about teams like Duke, about uh, Miami, even in North Carolina, even in Virginia, I would put into this category as teams that should be playing in the NCAA tournament. But like we said at the start of the show, in each of the last two years, this conference has only been able to get five teams each year into the big dance. And when you have so many big names, when you have 15 teams, that's not good enough. Like you should have at least six, seven, maybe eight teams going into the NCAA tournament. And my last thought on this conference before we wrap up is I'm very intrigued by that second group of teams, teams like Virginia Tech, teams like Clemson, teams like NC State, teams like Wake Forest, even if you want to throw Syracuse into that that category. I think these are the teams that might as well just determine like how good exactly this league is, especially compared to some of the other leagues. So when you look at that second group of teams, I think they all have realistic cases to say, like we should be playing in the NCAA tournament like Clemson, like Virginia Tech, NC State, Wake Forest, Syracuse, even a pit. They made they were in that group last year. They made it. So when you look at that that uh, second group of teams, is there anyone in particular you really like, you really dislike, and uh, what are your overall expectations? Can they kind of raise the overall ceiling of this league? Yeah, so two quick things. One, a team, I don't think they're a tournament team, but I think they could in theory be better, is I actually think keep an eye on Georgia Tech. Like Damon Stoudemire, um, you know, he was at Pacific, which is like literally one of the hardest jobs to win at. And he finished second or third one year. I think it was the COVID year when the tournament was canceled. He was coach of the year, goes to the Boston Celtics. And I think they actually have a pretty nice core with Debo, Debo Coleman. I almost said Debo Samuel. Debo Coleman, um, you know, the Kelly kid. Really? Uh, I, 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 I like, yeah, I like a couple of their transfers now. I will say Damon Stoudemire might have a little, uh, you know, personal life issues. He kind of got, I don't know if you saw this, but he kind of got dragged into the Mel Tucker mess, you know, like, like texts were released between Mel Tucker and that young lady and Damon Stoudemire's name may have been dragged into it. So I don't know what's going on in his personal life. People can Google that when they're done here, but, um, but professionally, I think they could be better. Don't think that means NCAA tournament, but I do think they could be better. The team that I really like, and I think you and I probably will be in agreement on this uh, I think it's Wake Forest, man. Like, and you know, one Forbes, it, I'll say this is like, you know, it's year four. He hasn't made a tournament and it doesn't feel like the fan base is clamoring as though it's, it's like all falling apart, which sometimes, you know, year four, you know, it's kind of like make or break show me time. And I know two years ago they were, they were very much on the bubble. Like I actually, t- you know, interviewed him at the final four and he talked a lot about that. So whatever, but with them, you know, uh, uh, you know, Cam Hildreth is really good. Damari Monsanto, I know you like him, and uh, Hunter Salas from Gonzaga. I think that I think that's a pretty good core. It'll also be interesting. We talked about this a lot on the SEC podcast. They have a second time transfer, Efton Reed from Gonzaga, who's a former McDonald's All American. Um, no idea if he will be eligible, unless I missed something. I don't think anything is official yet. Uh, don't think you know. I, I think he'd be a very important piece for them, but I don't know if there's any uh, 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 definitive answer yet on if he will be eligible or not. Um, but I like the core of guys that they have coming back, plus Hunter Salas. So that's a team that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. I think that they should be in contention for a tournament berth. I agree, and both of us are huge fans of Steve Forbes, huge fan of that program, and. I think that's a good point you brought up about it being year four and they haven't made an NCAA tournament because I almost forget he was hired like during Oven. He was the only power conference coach that was hired during that cycle. But keep going. I apologize. No, it's a good point. So it, it kind of like surprised me, but like, man, you're right. Like it, it is year four and he hasn't made a tournament, but at the same time, 
that team two years ago, they, they should have gotten him. Like the, the Ken Palm numbers didn't like them as much as we did. They, they looked like a tournament uh, team to me every time I watched them. And uh, I agree. Uh, Steve Forbes, he's just so good in the transfer portal. He's known as the guy that is bringing in guys that are good, but I don't think anyone really expects them to be uh, the best player on your team, but that's exactly what he did in each of the last two years with uh, Alondis Williams and Tyree Appleby. Both those guys just had phenomenal seasons and uh, they have a nice group coming back, uh, like you mentioned. So uh, I think they're definitely a team to watch. I'm rooting for our guy, uh, Kevin Keats at NC State. I'm going to ask, what do you think? I mean, you lose T. Smith, you lose whatever. I mean, I get Casey Morsell, you lose Jarkel Joyner. I mean, you know, he's, he said publicly that he likes, he likes his group. I, I don't know. It just feels like, I think this is like your six for him. Your five haven't won a tournament game yet. It just kind of feels like it's kind of just kind of, you know, what do you say? What's the right word? Uh, just kind of sputtering, you know, like the wheels are kind of sputtering. I'm looking right now. He is, this is year seven, I think, right? Yeah. You're seven. So year one makes the tournament. Now in his defense year two, they were literally the first team out of the tournament, uh, year three was the COVID year in which he, they might have made the tournament. But last year, I mean, there was a moment where they were really good early. And so, and by the way, they lost to a good Korean team in the tournament. But, you know, they started out the year 15 and four, 19 and five at one point, And again, kind of sputtered down the stretch, lost three of their last five. So I don't know. I, I don't like I don't really have a strong opinion on them one way or the other. Like, could they win enough games to be in the conversation? Yeah. But it just feels like year seven now. Like it feels like they, they should be, they should be a little more something than they are. Like I don't even know what they are at this point, other than than a team that's gonna, you know, if things break right, be on the bubble. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I remember at one point last year, I'm sure you remember, like that North Carolina game when they just ran oh, yeah. the court. Like I remember watching that and saying to myself, like, man, with uh, Smith and Joiner, two dynamic guards, like this could be, this is finally going to be the year Keats wins a tournament game. This is finally going to be the year they make a deep run, and it just never happened. And it's weird, like I think losing those two guys are going to be tough. Like just two very good dynamic guards. They also lose a player in Jack Clark in conference. Actually, he's now at Clemson. Yeah. Good defender, I really liked. But at the same time, they bring back Morcel, who's pretty good. He's been in the ACC at, at multiple schools for a few years now. They bring back DJ Burns, who was pretty underrated, very good big man, very productive. And then he had a pretty good transfer portal cycle, right? Like they bring in MJ Rice from Kansas. They also bring in DJ Horn, who at times was the best player on an NCAA tournament team last year at Arizona State. I think it could go either way. And this is kind of why I asked you, like, I'm very intrigued by this middle tier. Clemson was one of the f- uh, first five teams probably left out of the tournament last year. They bring back basically everyone. You also have a team in Virginia Tech who might have the best backcourt duo in this conference in uh, Padula and Couture. I'm a huge fan of their coach, Mike Young, as well. I'm intrigued by this second middle tier group. And I think what they do this year could just determine how good this conference is. Every year you try to talk me into Virginia Tech and I just can't get behind it. Um, but I will also say, unrelated to that, um, this is like the most cliche college basketball talking point for college basketball diehards, but Brad Brownell really has been on literally the hot seat forever. Like, I mean, this is like, forget year seven of, like, this is year seven of the Keats era. Like, this is year seven of Brownell being like one bad, like five game losing streak away from being fired. And the guy has survived time and time again. You know, it's funny. I'll be honest. Like I had kind of forgotten that last year they were really good for a good chunk of the season. Like I remember they beat Duke at one point, they were in first place, I think it alone in the ACC. So 
Uh, I had kind of forgotten, to be perfectly honest, how good that they were for a moment. But they're kind of one like, you know, I, I don't know. I can't think of a, a power conference team that kind of has less juice right now than them. Like they're just kind of there every year. They're never terrible. They're never that interesting. Um, I can't think of like one really like super fun player that they've had. Like just a weird, weird program. So, yeah, it kind of feels like a cycle, right? Like Brownell gets on the hot seat and the expectations going into the season are tournament or you're fired. But it's weird. They they missed the tournament last year, but they were so much better than basically everyone expected that they said, oh, we'll just give you one more year and you'll come back. But maybe this is really the ultimate make or break year because they actually have a pretty talented roster. They bring back PJ Hall. They bring back Chase Hunter. That's a very good guard uh, front court duo to start. They did some good work in the transfer portal too. And uh, again, I'm just very intrigued by this middle group. I, I think it could, it could go in a ton of different directions. Yeah, they. Uh, the funny part about all that is I actually was at their games the year that they made the Sweet 16. Like they played their regional in San Diego. So like, they're like literally the high moment of of the entire era. I was there for, and even that didn't feel that special. I'll be perfectly. I hate to say it, but it's like it's the truth. It was like the most. Even when they made the Sweet 16, I was there. It was the, literally the most boring team that you could ever imagine. There was nothing interesting about it at all. So. <laughs> All right. The most interesting thing of Clemson basketball is that they almost got Zion Williamson like seven years ago. That's like literally the most interesting thing that's happened in the last 10 years for them. I do remember that. And I do remember when I saw that news saying to myself, like, man, he's really going to go to Clemson. Like, wow, that's actually a good point. Totally forgot about that. But uh, yeah. so did everybody else. Everybody's pretty much. And hey, here's the good news for Clemson. At least they have football. Oh, wait, no, no oh. football. No, too soon, too soon. At least they're they're in the top, you know, sort of. The, you know, Clemson football, Clemson basketball, they're both sort of in the top half of the league. I think maybe, possibly, who knows? Stay tuned. We'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> I think uh, your tweet was great the other day saying that everyone who called Alabama football dead, yeah, that's really what Clemson is. So, unfortunately, uh, here's the problem. If Clemson football's dead, what is Clemson basketball? That's a great question that I'm sure not a lot of Clemson fans ever want to think about or even ever thought they'd get to that point. <laughs> It's bad, man. I think that's it. Anything else on the ACC? I think we pretty much hit on everything. Yeah. Uh, one, I guess one last thought, um, and this kind of relates to Louisville quickly. I'm kind of surprised how things, uh, how bad things have gotten for Florida State. Uh, they were a team that going into last year, I thought they were going to bounce back after a pretty disappointing 2022. Leonard Hamilton, he was knocking at the door so many times, I would say from about like 2016, 2017. Oh, yeah. to- about 2020, 2021, they had some really good teams, but it feels like a lot of the juice and a lot of the expectations are kind of gone from Florida State as well. Uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, but uh, yeah, besides that, always a great time talking the ACC, talking college basketball. Yeah, the only two things. One, that's another team. I was there in 20... They played back-to-back West Regionals, um, and they one was at Staples Center. That was when they lost in the Elite Eight to Michigan in 2018. I was there for that. That was when, like, uh, Leonard Hamilton kind of went off on Dana Jacobson and it was like a story for a day. Like he kind of was mean to her. And then one year they played Gonzaga in the sweet 16 when Gonzaga had like Rui Hachimura. So they're another team. They've come through the West a lot. I've been in a lot of their tournament games. My only real take is there's actually a pretty interesting, if like for college basketball nerds, they basically completely fell off once Dennis Gates was their lead assistant, lead recruiter. And they pretty much fell off directly after he left. I think his first year gone was the year they still had they that he had recruited Scotty Barnes and like that whole team was I don't want to say it was put together by him because they have a lot of they had a lot of good coaches on the staff at the time, but 
really him and, and CY Young, who's uh, Charleston, uh, uh, I'm, I'm blank, Charlton Young, excuse me, CY. Um, he, so Charlton Young went to Missouri with Dennis Gates, and then Dennis Gates obviously left for two years for Cleveland State and then went to Missouri. And it just doesn't feel like they have the same caliber of player anymore. Um, so I don't want to dismiss, dismiss Leonard Hamilton at all. But um, I think, you know, losing like two really good young assistants, one that has already proven to be an elite head coach, I think that's pretty, you know, pro- it's just hard to replace. And I think there's probably a pretty interesting parallel there of of those those kind of like two ships crossing in the night of you lose Dennis Gates and it, it really hasn't been the same since. Absolutely. That's a really good point because I knew Gates was a Hamilton disciple. He was a big part of uh, those teams that made some deep tournament runs, but wow. As soon as he leaves, it basically just starts falling apart. And uh, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent confident. It's going to get better anytime soon, but Leonard Hamilton is an older coach. He's been around this game for such a long time. He's very, he's been very successful and uh, I'm curious to see how much time he has left, but AT man, it's always a great time. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, like you said, we hit on really, I think every angle we could think of in this conference, the more we spoke about it, I'm actually pretty intrigued. I don't think the margins are that big between even like some of the top teams compared to some of the middle teams and even uh, some of the bottom tier teams, but always a great time. I'm looking forward to doing this again soon. Okay. Make sure to subscribe to the college hoops daily podcast. We've done our previews on the sec and the big East. I don't know what we're going to do next. My voice is like on the brink of going, but we'll, 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 we'll schedule one for later this week. I don't know if it'll be who it'll be or what it'll be or whatever, but we'll keep rocking, man. I can't wait for the season and uh, I love doing these with you, man. Absolutely. Same here. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we'll be on YouTube. We'll be on Spotify with these and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you guys soon. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.